Well, hey, everybody. So good to be with all of you guys this weekend. So excited to be here. So excited to travel with you guys through the things that God has for us in his word. But before we do that, um, I wanted to just take a few minutes together just to stop and to pause uh, because um, there are circumstances uh, in our world today that uh, demand us to stop and to pause. So as all of you probably know, um, likely, maybe some of you don't, but um, last weekend, again, in our nation, we had uh, a sort of a crazy, tragic uh, event take place. There were uh, a couple of people, 60 or so, uh, kind of like this room, maybe even a little less than this room, uh, that like you, got in their cars like they do every single week on a Sunday, uh, and gathered up their families and headed to church. Uh, went to church so that they could gather up with friends and community and experience the reality of biblical community. Went to church because they wanted to hear the preaching of the word so they could be stirred up and s- spurred on toward love and good deeds. Uh, headed to church so they could gather up to worship God in their singing and experience that like thousands of wonderful little churches across the nation do and across the world do. In this particular little church in Southern Springs, Texas, they had no idea last weekend that because of the broken, insane world we live in, uh, that uh, is the result of sin and death entering the world through our ancestors, Adam and Eve, making a choice that was devastating to the human race that probably all of us would have made. And because that brokenness then impacts the lives of people to step into evil things, a young man walked into that church and became an active shooter. Just to give you perspective of what occurred last weekend, uh, the number 26 lives lost doesn't sound so tragically crazy because we're so used to large numbers these days, right? But to give you an idea, what that would equate to is that after we're done here, half of us don't leave this room. Half of us. That every person sitting next to you, if you survive, they don't. If they survive, you don't. This particular event just hit a little differently uh, home to me because uh, I happen to have the privilege of being in a position of pastoring here at this church. And the pastor of that church was out of town that weekend, often isn't, but just that particular weekend he was. And his 14-year-old daughter happened to be at church that weekend. And she was one of the ones that lost her life. I have a 13-year-old daughter who runs around the hallways of this church all the time, and it would be like me going away for the weekend and coming back, and that's what happened. Half of you are gone, and she's one of them. There's no space in my imagination for that. There's no space in my comprehension for that kind of insanity. And that's what happened this weekend, this morning, this morning. That same group of people, the, the 30 or so that survived that incident, had to go worship in a tent because there's no way they could walk back into that building. And they had to worship God this morning, a week out from trying to figure out how on earth that kind of thing can happen. And they deserve our pause, don't they? They deserve us saying, hold on, we're just not gonna jump in and pretend everything's just normal and roll on through the stuff we have going on just because the news does that. We're gonna pause here and we're gonna pray for our brothers and sisters who are experiencing unthinkable things. And I think the other thing that they deserve, that this kind of event deserves, is us to reflect for a few minutes on how we are to respond to these kinds of things, what they ought to do in us. 
beyond what is obvious, which is grief. We ought to grieve sin and we ought to grieve death and we ought to grieve evil because it is what we battle against on this planet to see redemption take place. But beyond that, there are some other important things you and I need to recognize whenever we face with such clarity the realities of evil on this planet. One, we ought to remember that our lives, this world, everything about it is fragile. I think we believe somehow that if we just get everything right and do everything right and navigate everything right and, and if we live in the right place in the right neighborhood at the right time, we go to the right place, that we'll be, that we'll be fine. But, but folks, just a reminder that this kind of stuff has been going on on planet Earth for as long as planet Earth has been planet Earth, except for before the fall. I mean, Cain and Abel were murdering each other. So we go way back. I know it feels like all this stuff is way bigger than it's ever been and so fear starts setting in and concern starts setting in. We all start feeling like, oh my gosh, what's happening to our world? What's happening to our world has been happening to our world for a very, very long time. And oddly enough, statistically, uh, even active shooters are no more today than they've been in the last decade or the last five decades. You can go look at the stats. It's just more visible because we have a more global media and we have social media and we have stuff that we can access immediately. So. Here's, here's the important piece. You can choose to live in fear because it all feels bigger than it's been, or you can choose to say, as we ought to, we have a God that's been writing a redemptive story since the beginning of our history. He has promised he will finish every good work and he will make all things new, and it is in that that we trust. We do not trust in our circumstances or in our stability or in our navigation of things. We don't walk into places like this with fear because we are gathering and things happen in churches. We go, God is writing a story, and whatever that story may be, whatever part we play in it, we will walk that road uh, with the gospel right in front of us and the glory of God on our tongues. And so we are not fearful. We trust that God will make things beautiful that seem so impossible to make beautiful. The second thing we need to realize is that we don't simply just uh, relinquish ourselves to being um, uh, 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 people that are observers of the story. God has invited us to be participants in it. So though we trust God with the story, we also participate in the story. And there are two ways we ought to participate when we face things like this. The first is that we need to recognize that we are invited to be vigilant and to take care because we do live in the world that we live in, right? We do realize that it's in gathering spaces that these kinds of things will occur, whether it's concerts or whether it's churches or whether it's schools or whatever it is. And so we just need to be aware of that. Here at Mosaic Church, we take that extremely seriously, that we're aware of things. So, though we've taken uh, safety seriously for a very long time, over the last two years, we have been working very diligently on developing a safety team that has men and women on it that are medical professionals, that have current or past law enforcement experience or current and past military experience that are part of our safety teams that are well experienced in being able to handle emergencies and crises. Here's why we do that. Not because we're afraid of the giant extreme acts of violence, but because we recognize that with as many people as attend a church like ours, the likelihood that we will have a medical emergency on occasion in a gathering or in a lobby is very high. In fact, we've had them before, we'll have them again. People will experience medical events here in our church, and we want to make sure that when those events take place, that we are absolutely ready with both procedures as well as people to be able to handle those events. 
So in every gathering, we always have a medical professional in that gathering that's signed up to be at that gathering so that if anything ever happens, that we have someone on hand to engage immediately until the uh, emergency technicians get here. We also are connected to the police departments, fire departments, and uh, hospitals in our area through our safety team so that in an instant, calls are made and people can get here. That's an event we will probably face on multiple occasions throughout our story. Also, we may face events like uh, a fire in a building. Those things happen. Or uh, weather uh, stuff that suddenly comes, giant storms and lightning and craziness. Uh, or we may face things that are outside of our control but disrupt the environment we're in. And you're going to want to know where your kids are and know that everyone's safe. And our safety teams are incredibly well-versed to be able to move all of the crowds in the building as they need to move in any kind of emergency that may take place like that. On occasion, especially since we're moving into our new space, because of its visibility and the street that it's on and the location it's in, we will have people wander into our church because they smell the wonder of the donuts on the table, and they may have had a little too much to drink prior to walking into those doors. That's going to happen. We want to care for those people as much as we care for one another, but they come with some unique needs. They can be a little belligerent, they're not thinking straight, so our safety teams are well-versed to be able to engage those situations so that they don't escalate and they can be easily handled without any hassles. You probably won't even know that they happened. That way our staff or blue shirts don't have to deal with situations they're not equipped for. On occasion, because we live in a world with domestic disputes and other things, someone might come in very angry. Not violent, just angry. And our safety teams are well-versed in how to handle those situations. In the extremely unlikely scenario that we have an event in our gathering spaces that is more of an extreme violent event, all of our safety teams are well-trained and well-versed to handle those as well. I say in the extremely unlikely scenario, because if you look at the statistics, they are extremely unlikely. I know it sounds like they're happening all the time, but they're really not. It is extremely unlikely, kind of like the flight attendants on a plane say, in the unlikely event of a water landing, and you go, when have you ever heard of an actual water landing, except in the Hudson River, and we made a movie out of that. <laughs> and so, like, it's not going to happen, but it could theoretically happen. So what are you sitting on? A flotation device. You'll never have to use that thing, but if it were ever to happen, at least it floats. That's how we say it here. The likelihood of an extreme violent act here is extremely unlikely, but if it ever should occur, the safety teams are well-equipped to handle that in a manner worthy of the gospel. So, we as an organization respond to these kinds of things with vigilance and with care. The safety team is not here to keep me safe from you. They're here to keep us safe from things that may occur around us. Then you also are part of this story. Our safety team can only see so much and know so much and be part of so much, and they need you to be vigilant. I'm not talking fearful. I'm talking vigilant. They're very different. Vigilant simply means if you notice something that seems a little off, somebody seems to be sitting in a chair next to you having a really hard time breathing, or uh, they seem to be uh, 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 disoriented a little bit, and you go, something's going on here that may turn into someone passing out or whatever, it is helpful if you just let us know those kinds of things 
things before uh, we find them out because somebody collapses onto the floor. If someone in the lobby is being um, odd or belligerent and they're not your spouse, because if it's your spouse, you probably just ticked off at them from the drive from home to church, and that can be a little belligerent. But if it's somebody that's behaving erratically or, or not, it's very simple. You don't have to do anything about it. Just go up to a blue shirt, a staff person, or a safety team member and just say, hey, I noticed that. Most of the time, we will have already noticed that, but it's helpful if you guys are part of that story. Our goal is always to stop something before it escalates into anything unnecessary or awkward. And so it would be helpful if you guys are vigilant as well. That way, as we move into our new space, we're all working together to keep our space safe for everyone, including those who need special care because they're not in their right mind at that time and need to be cared for and loved in a unique way. And we want to be able to do that. So the last thing is this, and then we're going to pray. The biggest thing we can do when we face things like this, an act of violence, is to recognize that the solution to these things is not gonna be found in political stands or in decisions on who owns what and who buys what. Yes, it's all over the internet and you, can, you guys all probably stand on different positions as to how we're gonna solve the problem of violence. Let me tell you, I'll tell you exactly how we're gonna solve the problem of violence on this planet and that is by redeeming this planet. And the only way this planet is going to be redeemed is if the people of God go out of this place and they engage their actual neighbors and their actual community in redemptive ways and we care for the marginalized and we care for the lonely and we care for the lost because when we do that, they never become people that engage in violent and terrible things because they are loved and cared for and engaged by the biblical community. The only solution to seeing these kinds of things diminish is us becoming the people that we are made to be to step out and to be redemptive in everything we do. So when we experience these kinds of things, they ought to stir up in us, not a fear so that we shrink away, but a confidence that we get back out there and go, we are the force on this planet that will storm the gates of hell and the gates of hell shall not prevail against us. That's not an act of violence, that's an act of redemption. Wherever there is evil on this planet, we get to go into it, and when we touch it, because we are full of the Spirit, we bring life, light, and freedom to it. So may we, as a church, be more intentional than ever to engage our neighbors and our community and our people around us in ways that are redemptive so that we can be the solution instead of some political move or some, or some other silly thing that we try to do to pretend that that's actually the problem when the real problem is we live on a broken planet with broken people who need to be loved and when they're not, they end up engaging in very dark, dangerous and evil things and we can do something about that. So let's do that. I'm gonna pray for our friends in Texas and then I'm gonna pray for us that God would use us mightily to create the prevention for these things as we engage in our community. God, we stand here really honestly with no words that we feel are adequate for our friends in Texas that are today a week out from an unthinkable event. We have nothing to bring to the table in our humanity, God. We know that. There's, there's no comfort we hold that we know if we could just bring it, they would be fine, or no peace we could bring to them. There's no hope that we could show them that, that would make this all fine. There's no clarity we can bring because we are shocked and overwhelmed by these events. That's why we're coming to you, God. 
because what we are incapable of doing, what is not possible in our humanity, you are capable of doing and is possible for you because you are the God of impossible things. So we're coming to you to ask you for impossible things. We're asking you to give the people of Southern Springs, Texas, a peace that transcends understanding. We know that's impossible, God, in circumstances like this, so we're asking you to do it. We're asking you to give them comfort that is beyond imagination, pouring your grace upon them that it would be sufficient even for these circumstances. This is an impossible request, God, but we know that you are the God of the impossible. We ask you to give them hope, a hope that transcends the circumstances that are shouting to them there is no hope. We're asking you to give them clarity, to see things they should not know and should not be able to see so that they would find themselves trusting in your story even when there's no reason to based on the circumstances in which they find themselves. We're asking you to do impossible things in that little town, to make beautiful a story that cannot be made beautiful, and yet you can do it, and so we ask you to do it. God, give us and them and all who are watching this unfold a clarity of what it means to trust you in circumstances that seem to communicate that you are not in control, but that we recognize is a part of the unfolding story in your patience with sin on this planet so that you might redeem your people. God, we thank you for tolerating sin even though it's so damaging so that history can unfold and people can come to know you. We do ask you for justice. We ask you for sin and death to be undone And we ask you to empower us to be a part of that solution until you come again and do it once and for all. In the meantime, God, empower us by your spirit to engage our local community in redemptive ways so that we might be a force of healing and life and light and freedom so that these kinds of things can be prevented because we are engaging those who would fall into them because they are left in the margins of society. God, we ask for your grace upon grace upon grace. Lead us into your story and show us the way we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, we, Mosaic Church, um, are getting ready in four weeks to move into our new space, which is super exciting. It's super exciting for a number of reasons because uh, the new space affords us some things that I'm very excited about. One, the, the theme of the new environment is so intentionally gospel rich, it's ridiculous. I can't wait for you to see it. It's like the gospel is like just immersed upon you at every turn of every corner. And you're like, oh my gosh, it's just everywhere. And so that's super exciting and that's going to be surprising and delightful. The space is designed in functionality to be able to do all the things we dream about in terms of the movement of people here. We're never going to have to see a mom or dad in line with their toddlers uh, just in the nightmarish reality of knowing that they're going to close that stinking room and I'm going to have to take these beautiful and amazing little maniacs into into the gathering with me. Uh, So that's going to be undone uh, and I won't have to walk out into the lobby like I do week after week in the mornings here and see 30 or 40 people sitting on folding chairs staring at a little TV screen because they couldn't fit in here. Very excited about all of that. Also, very aware that as we move into a larger space, 
and the context becomes larger, that that's going to come with some unique temptations and challenges for us that we need to be very aware of and very careful of. See, because though we have thousands of people that call this church home and attend every weekend, we break all of you up into these little gathering spaces so you never really feel like you're part of a church more than 600 because you're right here. Uh, But the reality is now when you walk into the newer space, you will feel some of the largeness that comes with that. And it's going to change the way the dynamics feel and there'll be logistics we're gonna have to engage in. And in doing so, here's the challenge. There's so many things we can get busy doing in the new building as a church that we could find ourselves being busy doing church and doing little else. That we can just become a church that has so much going on internally that we just do church and do church and do church and we just do logistics and do logistics and you come and you go and we have fun and then that's it. And then we lose the very essence of everything we have spent a decade and a half building. Because we did not build this for a decade and a half so that we could become a church doing church. We built this because we believe wholeheartedly that we, the church, are the body of Christ and that we get to live our lives demonstrating our passion for God and his passion for people. And in doing so, we become a redemptive force in our community locally and globally and we see the world actually change. And we have to walk into this new space and figure out how we're going to make sure we don't get caught up in the insanity of big stuff and logistics and we keep our heads on straight and we utilize this new space and this new influence and this new opportunity to become more effective and more intentional than ever in becoming a force of redemption in our community. So we've been talking over the last few weeks about what it means for us to steward this story in a manner worthy of the gospel, worthy of the kingdom of God, worthy of Jesus. And so we've been talking about stewardship. Stewardship's a very simple thing. Biblical stewardship, super simple. Managing God's blessings, God's way for God's glory. That's it. Managing God's blessings, God's way for God's glory. And God's blessings are what? Everything. So managing everything you have, everything we collectively have, in God's way for God's glory. That's what we have to do. So two weeks ago, we briefly talked about what it means to manage your and my personal resources, our money. We didn't start with money because money's the most important thing. We didn't start with money because money is the most powerful thing. We didn't start with money because money moves the world, okay? We started with money because of all the things you and I will have to learn to manage God's way for God's glory. Our money is the thing that is most likely to feel like a God to us. And the reason that is, is because our money behaves like a God, Our money provides for us the needs we have. It provides shelter. It provides food. It provides well-being. It provides transportation. It provides what we feel like is life. It provides the joy of having things that you desire. It, 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 it It is the thing that gives you dreams in the future. If you have enough of it, you can dream things. It provides rest, relaxation, recreation. It provides vacation. It provides the means to do these kinds of things. It provides a future and a hope for you and your family. Does this sound like a God to you? It sounds like the same things God says he does for us. 
And so we are likely to believe that our money is something we must preserve uh, for our own well-being. And so if we learn to let go of that, the thing most tied to our hearts, and steward that, manage that God's way for God's kingdom, then all the other things we are invited to manage God's way for God's kingdom become super easy to manage because that's the one that's the hardest because it's most tied to our hearts. But it's not the one that's most important to manage because it's the most important thing. The most important thing that we steward, the most important thing we are invited to manage as God's blessing, God's way for God's glory is the actual gospel of God, the redemptive story of God. So last week, that's what we talked about, that we are invited to, to steward the gospel of Jesus Christ on this planet through our resources, our circumstances, and our relationships so that the gospel of Jesus Christ is seen beautiful and vibrant and wondrous and does its great work of redemption on the planet on which we live. This is what we're called to do. So last week we talked about the five solas uh, in light of the Reformation anniversary. And the five solas are theological realities that guard the gospel, that keep it pure and right and true, that give us the truths that make the gospel the gospel. And it is the gospel of Jesus Christ that we steward. So the question we should ask ourselves as we enter into this next part of the story is, if we are to steward the gospel of Jesus Christ, if we are to manage the gospel, God's greatest blessing, in God's way for God's glory, how on earth do we do that? I mean, it sounds awesome, manage the gospel. And you're like, what is it? What do I do with it? How do I do it? And thankfully, Jesus didn't leave us guessing, going, good luck. Hope you figure it out. He actually told us how to do it. Any of you guys know what on, on earth this is? You can say it. It's a salt lamp. That's what everybody said throughout the weekend. But I need to correct you, okay? It's a Himalayan salt lamp. If you say a salt lamp, that doesn't sound very cool, does it? It's a salt lamp. It's a block of salt on a piece of wood with a lamp in it. But if you say it's a Himalayan salt lamp, then suddenly it conjures images of the Himalayan mountains. And wherever the salt came from, apparently it came from the Himalayas. I'm pretty sure it did, but I don't know that for sure. And wait for it. Wait for it. Are you ready? <gasps> yes, that's worthy of a woo. The Himalayan salt lamp. What does the Himalayan salt lamp do? I can tell you because I Googled it. Okay, here we go. <laughs> Check this out, man. This is so awesome. Okay. Uh, the Himalayan salt lamp benefits. Are you ready? Why would you buy this strange looking orange rock and put it in your house? I'll tell you exactly why. Here it is. Ready? Air purification. Out of all the possible Himalayan salt lamp benefits, air purification is often the quintessential goal of most buyers. If you're buying this neat little thing that you can get at all sorts of places now because it's super popular, you're buying it because it purifies the air in your home. I mean, just breathe in for a second. Do you feel it? Mm. You probably don't. You're breathing the horrid air that was in this room before, but me, I am breathing the purified air, so it's going to get awesome in a second. But uh, beyond the quintessential benefit of this amazing lamp, here are some other benefits that you probably had no idea about. This is super cool. It, it reduces the electromagnetic radiation and airborne infections. Ooh, I feel safe already. <laughs> Isn't that awesome? 
right around me right now, no electromagnetic radiation. You guys are dying, I'm fine. And if you are carrying an airborne infection, I'm safe, because I have the lamp and it's on. <clears throat> um, it eases asthma and allergy symptoms. Mm, that's good, because we live in Florida and we need that. And wait for it, it gets better. It is a mood booster and a sleep promoter. <laughs> Don't you feel happy? I feel happy, it's orange and glowing and off this salt comes all this air purification which makes my head just feel so good and I feel happy and I'm probably gonna sleep better tonight especially if I leave it on. Which, speaking of that, I should turn it off because we have lots to do here and I don't want you to have one of those sleep moments that it apparently does. It's a sleep promoter and I don't need you sleeping. Okay, so I'm gonna leave it off for right now. See, this salt lamp may seem like a bit of a trinket in our cultural context, but I'm not surprised at all by the fact that they came up with a lamp inside a big block of salt and that it has some benefits. I don't know if it has all these benefits, that's what they say, but I'm not surprised at all that it has benefit because salt is an extraordinary thing. It's an extraordinary thing. See, we don't think salt as much because we think salt is a little white uh, uh, stuff in a little uh, shaker thing in your, closet, uh, in, your, in your cabinet in your kitchen so that when the food that uh, the person in your kitchen makes isn't as flavorful as it ought to be, you put a bit of salt on it and you can tell them how wonderful the food tastes, right? We use it to flavor things, but salt is actually an extraordinary thing far beyond that. Have you ever heard the term, um, you're not worth your salt? Ever wonder where that came from? Man, you're not worth your salt. It's kind of a silly term, isn't it? I mean, salt, you're not worth your salt. I'm not offended. Salt doesn't seem that important. Salt, salt, okay. So um, let me tell you why they use that term, okay? Today, there are reportedly more than 14,000 known uses for salt. 14,000 known uses for salt today, okay? Not only does the human body need it to function properly, but salt also is utilized from everything from producing chemicals to de-icing roads. There's just a lot of stuff salt does. But before the days of artificial refrigeration, the main method for preserving food was to treat it with salt. You know why? Salt has in it a property that when you rub it into something that's decaying, food, meat, vegetables, whatever, it actually is a chemical that reduces or completely freezes the decaying process. I mean, can you imagine? You put salt on something and what is decaying slows down and comes to a slow or complete halt. It stops decay. That's incredible. So listen to this. Um, salt uh, in the ancient world before refrigeration was used to treat food. Salt came to represent power. Here's why. Because without it, armies couldn't travel great distances and explorers couldn't sail to new lands because their provisions would spoil. Throughout the ages, a variety of cultures have used salts and minerals in everything from medicine to preservation to keeping life life. As a matter of fact, as you read on in this, and it's an, it's an incredible thing because in the Roman Empire, and this is where the term, you're not worth your salt, came from, they would pay Roman soldiers in salt 
or in wages to trade for salt because salt was more precious to them than gold or money because salt preserved your food, it preserved your well-being, it was medicine to you, it gave you life. So what our money is to us today, the provision of life, salt was to the ancient world. Salt's a really big deal. And salt's not only a really big deal, but salt was of extraordinary benefit. When you thought about salt, you thought about things that benefited you, like our wonderful little salt lamp here. Fresh air, mood enhancer, sleep promoter, and electrolyte, I mean electromagnetic uh, radiation killer. Man, I want one of those, right? You want one of these in your house because it benefits you uh, so greatly. And of course, in a more obvious sense, light, light, salt and light combined, so beautiful. Light is always of benefit. The only reason we're having this neat experience together is because you can see me and I can see you. It would be awfully awkward if you heard my voice somewhere in the darkness, but you never knew what I looked like and I didn't know what you looked like because we lived in utter darkness. You know how when you wake up at night and you give it a minute for your eyes to adjust and then you can kind of see? That's because we live in perpetual light because our society has electricity. We're never without light. But in the ancient world, there were often times where there was no light. And so when you woke up, you waited for those eyes to adjust. They never did. It just stayed pitch black. And so it was very dangerous to move around without light. So light was of extreme benefit, a, a, a very, very, very high commodity. And salt was of extreme benefit because both of those things were the difference between safety and danger or even life and death. You wanted salt around and you wanted light around because light and salt benefited you greatly. Jesus, when he started his public ministry, uh, he, was, uh, he was doing some incredible things, right? So he would go town to town and he would produce these extraordinary supernatural things. He would heal sick people and he would do things that, that weren't possible. And so his fame began to spread among the Jewish people. He was already a rabbi, but now he was a rabbi with power that they'd never seen before. But not only that, but the, the scriptures tells us that when he taught, he taught with an extraordinary authority. He taught with an articulate, intelligent wonder that people couldn't quite grasp that seemed to always know more than everybody else. We now know why that was because he turned out to be the creator and sustainer of all things, but they didn't know that yet. So you can imagine this human being uh, that they thought was nothing but a human being, but an extraordinary one at that. And so more and more Jewish people began to want to interact with this rabbi, be around wherever he was to hear what he was teaching. His fame had spread so significantly that it had crossed some of the typical cultural boundaries. And so it had crossed into the Roman world and into the Greek world. And so we find from historical evidence that, in fact, many of the followers of Jesus were always a mix of Jewish people, Greek people, and Roman people. Uh, Decapolis, which is the great 10 cities that set across from the Sea of Galilee. Uh, Decapolis had heard about Jesus, so many came uh, from Decapolis to hear him. And in that time of history, it was very typical for you. If you heard about someone like Jesus, you might take a day or two off work and travel across and go and walk with him because the way the rabbinical world worked is you didn't have like a seminar like we did on Tuesday at 2 p.m. Uh, you would just show up wherever the rabbi was and then you would walk with him for a couple of hours, a 
couple of days if you could afford to uh, in terms of your time. And you just see what he ends up doing because that's how rabbis work. They would just do life and they would just teach on the go and they would show you things. And you always were super bummed when you found out either Tuesday when you missed hanging out with the rabbi, he taught the awesome parable with this or that. And you're like, no, I would, that would have been so cool to hear. Or, oh my gosh, he raised a dead person. Oh, how did I miss that? So that was very typical. And so when we follow Jesus, uh, we're told that he teaches with great authority. We're told he does amazing miracles, but we're not given the privilege of knowing what he taught until a particular moment. And then after that, we, we hear lots of his teachings. Uh, there was a moment where Jesus was going along. The, the crowd had already gathered. He was already had some fame, so he's already got a mixed crowd. And uh, he's going along, and he sits down uh, uh, at an elevated space, sort of up on a hill, like they would typically do. And all the people are kind of sitting on the hill because uh, then, then you could uh, speak and sound would travel well and it wouldn't be blocked by stuff. And so it's very typical. And, and he sits down and he says, okay, everybody gather up, gather up. And he starts teaching. And on this particular occasion, very early on in his ministry, uh, this particular teaching is recorded by Matthew and by some of the other um, apostles uh, that wrote the gospels. Luke records some of this as well. And, and we get the privilege not only of hearing that he taught with authority, but hearing what he taught. And in this particular sermon, we lovingly call it the Sermon on the Mount because he sat on the side of, uh, of the mount and he, and he taught. What we discover is that he, he teaches his first big like public thing that we have access to. He teaches about the kingdom of God. He teaches about the place he represents, the place he is from, the place he is king of kings in. And he compares the kingdom of God to the kingdom of earth. And he basically does this to tell us when you see fully what the redemptive story is, because by the time he teaches on the mount, nobody knows he's gonna die on a cross. Nobody knows he's gonna raise from the dead. Nobody knows he's the Messiah of the entire world. Nobody knows he's gonna overcome sin and death. They don't know this stuff. So he's basically saying, when you discover who I am and you encounter the redemptive reality of God and you follow me, you become a child of God, I wanna tell you what that's gonna be like. And that's the Sermon on the Mount. It's, man, this is my kingdom. This is what it means to follow me. And, and, and this is the kingdom you're currently in. And there's a stark contrast. And I can't wait for you to experience the wonder of being part of this kingdom while living in this one. And he starts the sermon off with what we lovingly call the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes are these seven extraordinary statements where he says, blessed are those who, or happy are those who, and then he fills in. And at first, if you read them just quickly, haphazardly, you might think that they're little statements about if you do these things or these things, then you'll be happy like a little self-help book, but it's not like that at all. What Jesus was doing as we study the Beatitudes was giving us a summary, a glimpse into what it would mean that we belong to Jesus, that when we belong to Jesus, that we would actually have these things as true. And it's beautiful because the middle Beatitude is about his righteousness, and then the three up front are about our dark side, and the three on the back end are about the fruit of belonging to Jesus. And he says, it doesn't matter where you land, when I'm done with you, this is what your life is going to be like. Blessed are those who are in me. Essentially, it is a brief and beautiful little unpacking of what it means that we are going to be recipients of his grace and mercy. So when you're done with the Beatitudes and you go, oh, oh, this is what it's going to look like to be recipients of God's grace and mercy, you realize that God began this beautiful sermon with 
this is what I'm going to do for you. This is who you're going to become. The very next thing that is recorded in the book of Matthew, probably because Jesus said this next, but certainly the Spirit of God for our benefit put this next, is an extraordinary little piece of scripture. Let's turn to the book of Matthew chapter 5 and I'll show you what I mean. Matthew chapter 5 is on page 898. If you're using one of the Bibles that we provided at the door, if you're using your own Bible or a smart device, Matthew chapter 5, we're going to be in verse 13. So Matthew chapter 5, we start with the Beatitudes, a beautiful summary vision of what it means that we are recipients of God's grace and mercy, and our identity is now tied to Jesus, and that we are utterly free, and we're going to experience a whole different version of life. And then as soon as he's done giving us our identity as recipients of the gospel, he says these words in verse 13, you are the salt of the earth. I want to stop there because that statement uh, requires us to pause for a second and pay attention. I want you to pay attention to the way that he makes this statement. This is not a statement of potential or a statement of progression. Those would sound more like this. You might someday be the salt of the earth or I will make you the salt of the earth or you will become the salt of the earth. These are progressive statements or statements of potential. You might be the salt of the earth. None of those are true. He doesn't even say I am the salt of the earth and I will sprinkle some saltiness on you. This is what he says. You are the salt of the earth. Not maybe, not someday, not after a decade of following Jesus. You are the salt of the earth, period. End of story. That's what it is. It's a fact. It's declarative. It's not in question. If you are someone who belongs to Jesus, a follower of Christ, like the Beatitudes unpack, then you are also the salt of the earth. God's direct intent for who he made us, not only as recipients of the gospel, but as participants in the gospel, is that we are now to the earth what salt is to us. We are to the earth what salt is to us. And remember, we think little white powder, eh, 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 flavor. But remember, 14,000 different uses that we are unaware of today and in the ancient world, you got paid in salt. Have you ever like worked for 40 hours in the week and then you get your paycheck and you're like, money? That's what you're giving me? Money? This is totally inappropriate. I don't want your money. I worked 40 hours this week. What am I gonna do with money? Have you ever done that? No, why not? Because money is of grand benefit, is it not? Money gets you a bunch of stuff. So you're like, oh, thank you, too little, but hey, anyways. <laughs> so salt, that's what salt was. And he says, you are now to them what salt is to you. Look, the very next statement he makes in the next verse is this. You are the light of the world. So he chooses two things in the ancient world to compare us to. Not to say we're like them. He says we are them. We are to the world what they are to us. So he chooses two things, salt and light. And he says, what salt is to you, you are to the world. What light is to you, you are to the world. That's an amazing thing. Now, oddly enough, he does do something here that's a little strange at first. Listen to this, verse 13 again. You are the salt of the earth, but... If salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? 
It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. So you read that and it should instill a bit of fear in you immediately because you're like, oh no, I might be the salt of the earth, but if I lose my saltiness, then I'm going to be cast out and trampled on by Jesus. If you lose your saltiness. So you are the salt of the earth unless you lose your saltiness. So we should talk a little bit about how you lose your saltiness. Well, we don't have to. Good news. Because if you do the research, salt can't lose its saltiness. Did you know that? You can't actually make salt not salty. So why is Jesus saying this? He's talking to a crowd of people and he is intentionally causing us all to go, hold on, excuse me. I don't think salt can lose its saltiness, Jesus. And Jesus will say, exactly. And you'll go, now I'm super confused. And Jesus goes, no, think about it. You are the salt of the earth. If you weren't salt, if you didn't behave like salt, if, if you weren't to people what salt is to you, then the question really becomes, what good are you to the people? If salt didn't taste like salt, if salt didn't have the properties of salt, if salt did not do the 14,000 things salt does, what would we do with salt? Well, we'd throw it out, have no use to us. But we don't throw salt out, do we? We keep salt because salt is of incredible benefit to us. See, we know he's doing this because the next one sounds almost as equally silly once you know salt can't actually lose its saltiness. Listen to this one. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. So we get that part like, ooh, there's a city in the dark. I hide, hide, up, oh, it's still there. Like when there's light in the darkness, you can't hide it, right? Nor do people, here it is, here's the stupid statement, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket. Jesus wants us to kind of go, well, hold on, I've, I've never seen anyone do this. Okay, we need some light. Kill it. If you don't want light, just don't light the lamp. But you don't light the lamp and then put a basket over it. Like it is a statement of insanity. If you light a light, then it's a light. Who puts a basket over it? If you're salt, then you're useful. Who takes salt and doesn't do what salt does? I have all the salt. It could preserve my food forever, but I'm not going to rub it in because I want to die. Nobody does that. And so Jesus goes, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. What salt is to you, you are to the world. This is what I made you for. This is why I made you. This should start inspiring us in our identity as people participating with God in the redemptive story on mission. He's made us for it. But it should also begin to tell us what he's made us to do. How do we steward the gospel? Because I'll tell you, we've been very confused by that as a church for many, many centuries. We believe, partly because we've been taught, that what God wants us to do after we become Christ followers is to memorize one of the hundred ways to preach the gospel, the verses that go with it, and then to go into our workplaces and our social networks and our, and, and our arenas, and we are to take this message of the gospel and find humans and try to convince them to believe in it so that they will convert to Jesus and say a prayer so we can make sure they go to heaven and not hell. And so we carry around this very awkward experience because we're like, they don't even want to hear about it. And that's because we walk in with this thing that, and they see us coming and they're like, oh no, it's a Christian. <laughs> and this is what we believe we're supposed to do. But listen to what Jesus is saying. He hasn't said a word about converting anyone. 
hasn't said a word about even sharing with anyone anything yet. He just said, I just want you to know who you are. You are what salt is to you, you are to the world. And what light is to you, you are to the world. What is salt and light to the world? To me. Benefit. Say the word. Benefit. It's benefit. We are supposed to be of benefit to the world. And this is not what we've been taught. We've been taught to stand a distance from the world and to look at them from our little glasses like, oh my gosh, the world. But I'm going to preach the gospel to you because you need grace and then maybe you'll start behaving rightly. And he goes, no, 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 no. You're salt and light. When you are around the world, the world should feel about you and I like they feel about salt and light. I want more of it. It's awesome. And it's of great benefit. Imagine for a second with me. Okay, let's say we went to the internet and it didn't say, oh, it uh, kills the electromagnetic uh, radiation, makes you breathe easy, and makes you happy and sleep well. Instead, when you went to the internet, it said this, a Himalayan salt lamp, my friend just bought one, I wonder why, and you go, Himalayan salt lamps, Google, and the first sentence is this, benefits of the Himalayan salt lamp, none. Zero. It's a cute looking light and it doesn't really light that much. So in the dark, it's actually of no use because you see it glowing, but you can't get to it because it's dark between here and there. And so even as a lamp, it's a pretty pathetic lamp. Would you go out and buy one? Zero benefit. I mean, it doesn't do anything good. It's just neutral and it's a terrible lamp. No, you, you wouldn't. Well, well, hold on. Let's, let's make it better, Right. Let's say when you went to buy one from Bed Bath & Beyond or Walgreens or wherever they are, they're all over the place, there was a little sticker on it that said, buy at your own risk. And you're like, <laughs> maybe because a child can swallow it, right? And you're like, no, man, that's probably not it. So I'm going to Google it. And you Google it, and this is what it says. <clears throat> okay, so the Himalayan salt lamp is very risky and dangerous. At night, if it's in your room, plugged in or not, it randomly turns on with lots of bright and irritating colors with a noise that goes off that either wakes you from your sleep regularly so that you're very unrested the next morning, or if it doesn't actually wake you up, the colors are designed to move through your eyelids and cause nightmares instead of happy dreams. So if you buy this, I'm glad to tell you, you will be extremely exhausted every morning. And by the way, that's not enough. What's really cool about this is during the day, if it's in your presence, it senses if you are relaxed and calm because the kids have left for school and then it will randomly make a very loud noise and flash things at you so that it causes a near heart attack several times a day because we wouldn't want you to actually relax. And by the way, some testing has been done on the salt and it's not immediate, but it releases small teeny tiny bits of poison into the air and for the first 10 years, you don't notice it, but over the next 10 years, you will slowly degrade from evil diseases that will cause you to die. So we highly recommend the salt lamp, just buy it at your own risk. I mean, really, would you buy one? Why do we buy Himalayan salt lamps? Because they are of benefit, because they benefit us. We don't buy them if they are neutral, and we certainly don't buy them if they're risky. Folks, I just want to be honest about us. Most of the time in our workplaces, most of the time in our social networks, most of the time in our neighborhoods, we are either a neutral force, in other words, we do nothing, we just blend in, or worse, we are like the salt lamp with hang out at your own risk. 
We shoot bright colors at people that are super irritating. We launch the gospel at them like a grenade. Uh, We encounter them in strategic ways in the lunchroom and they're like, no, it's the Christian. And, and, And they go to bed at night having nightmares about having to face us the next day and hear the gospel for the 19th time in an awkward way to have to say, I'm so excited about your beliefs, but please leave me alone. That's how they experience most of the Christian world, neutral or negative. And yet Jesus says, you are to the earth what salt is to you. You are to the earth what light is to you. And then he bothers actually, just in case we're going, it's gotta be about conversion. It's gotta be about conformity. It's gotta be. And he goes, no, wait, 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 wait. Look, verse verse 15. I mean, verse 16, in the same way, let your light shine before others. Now, let's take a look at what God's hoping the result is of us being salt and light to the world. Let your light shine before others so that they may immediately convert to Christianity, say the prayer, and be saved from hell. It doesn't say that in case you weren't reading with me. It actually says this, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Before Jesus ever tells us to go out and share the message of the gospel, he tells us to be of benefit to everyone around us. People should want to be around us. People should be thrilled that we are the neighbor, that we are the coworker, that we are the other family on the soccer team, that we are around them. So the question we should ask ourselves then is, if God's call to me is to be of benefit to my neighbor, of benefit to the people around me, then who is it I should start benefiting? How do I, how do I actually become this neighbor? Who is my neighbor? This is super simple. Jesus didn't leave us guessing. He told this cool story about a Samaritan guy who got hurt and people that didn't want to help him. And out of the story, he made a singular point. The people you least think are your neighbor are your neighbor. In fact, let me put it this way. If it's human, it's your neighbor. If it's human, it's your neighbor. So that includes your spouse, by the way. You're like, what? You have to behave toward your spouse like a good neighbor. Well, hold on. When I married them, they don't still qualify as like the biblical neighbor that I have to be nice to, right? No, as a matter of fact, they do. Your children are part of the biblical your neighbor, Kids, your parents are actually part of the biblical, your neighbor, they're human. I know you don't think so, but I promise you they are. Our neighbors are all around us. Our neighbors are global, our neighbors are local. But the trouble is when we broaden neighbor to that giant thing, we think we can get away with a quick check to some orphan in another land, which by the way is a wonderful thing to do, but we think we can kind of go about our business and just deal with the global neighborhood, but we never really think about our neighbors as the practicality of those that are actually our neighbors. You have this thing called a house next to your house usually, and then one on the other side. Do you know that those are your neighbors? What? People live in them? They sure do. See, the question we have to ask ourselves is, do you actually know your actual neighbors? Well, I I do. I know my neighbors. They're awesome. No, like their name. Oh, you didn't say name. You just said, like, do I see them? No, no. Do you know their name? And if you go, I do know their name, well, let's take it further. Do you know whether their marriage is doing well or not? 
Do you know what the struggles are they're having if they are not married and, uh, and they are single and how they're living and what they're dealing with? Do you even know if they're married or single? Do you know whether they um, have parents living with them or do you know whether they are parents of a child that is estranged and hasn't come home for a long time? Do you know whether they've had a consistent job or whether they've struggled, whether they have a job now or not? Do you know which one of them or if both of them actually work? Do you know anything about the insecurities and struggles and fears they have or the joys and wonder they have? Do you know what movies they like? Do you know what food they like? Have you ever walked over to them and handed them cookies only to say, I don't eat cookies, and then you go, don't worry, what do you eat? I'll make it next time. Do you know your neighbors? Because if you don't know your neighbors, you can be of no benefit to them. Not only do you know your neighbors, but are you of benefit to your neighbors? Do you benefit them? They ought to be thrilled that you're their neighbors. And that's just the house on your left and your right. Do you know that you live in this thing that we call a neighborhood? Do you know what a neighborhood is? It's the hood in which you neighbor. It's really cool. You get to go into the hood and be a good neighbor to all the people in your neighborhood. And that's what makes it awesome. Have you thrown a block party for your neighbors? Have you engaged in them? When holidays take place in our cultural context, do you spend most of your time trying to figure out whether the holiday is appropriate or not? Or do you just get out on the roads because everyone's in their driveways and go talk to people? Are we engaged with our actual neighbors? In your workplace, do you know anything about the person in the cubicle across from you? Do you know anything about the person in the office next to you? Do you really or do you just theoretically know stuff about them? Folks, we are the salt and the light of the world. We are to be of benefit to the people around us and they ought to be thrilled that we're there. When it comes down to it and you tell people about a Christian you know in the workplace or in the neighborhood, you ought to talk about them like you would about a Himalayan salt lamp after your allergies have gone away. And you're like, I bought it and they went away and it's pure and there's no radiation and my skin is like beautiful and you should buy 10 of them. That's how they ought to talk about us. But that's not usually the case, is it? Should we want to share the gospel with people? Yes, absolutely. But not as an agenda, as a hope. See, this is where we get it mixed up. We think the agenda is conversion and we hope we can kind of be friendly to get them there so it's not awkward. But it's actually the other way around. The agenda is to be of benefit to our neighbors, their friends. And the hope is that in that process, they'll come to know Jesus. But that's whose work? Yours or God's? God's. And your work is to be of benefit to them because you are not the spirit of God. You are salt and light. To be salt and light to them just like salt and light is to you. The reason we're not good neighbors is very simple. We are afraid, first of all, because... Our agenda is all mixed up. We think we're supposed to become people's friends so we can convert them. So we start a friendship already nervous about the conversation we're going to have with them about Jesus. We're like, I don't know if it's going to be in a month or a year, but at some point it's coming and I'm super nervous. So should I even make friends with them? Because if I do, then it's just going to get weird when they find out I actually made friends with them so that I could convert them to Jesus. The problem with that is because we're not supposed to be their friends so we can convert anybody to anything. We're just supposed to be their friends. We're just supposed to be their friends. And our hope is that in that they will see Jesus through the way we live and hear Jesus through the words we speak and come to know Jesus because he's awesome. And then we're busy. We're just busy. 
We're busy doing stuff we don't need to be busy doing. And we need to make time to be good neighbors. We need to do it because that's who we are. Being a good neighbor is not a side note for us. It's our identity and we ought to be doing it. Listen to Paul. I'm going to close with this and leave you with this thought. Listen to Paul. Paul writes to the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 19. This is how he overcomes the obstacles of being a good neighbor. Verse 19, for though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all. Isn't that beautiful? Though I have no obligation to anyone, though I am free from all, I have chosen to make myself a servant to all. Does that sound like what Jesus said? Be salt and light of benefit to the people around you. Look at this, look at this. That I might win more of them. What's Paul's hope? That people will come to Jesus. What's Paul's agenda? To be a servant to people so that they would see Jesus in him. Look, he says it this way. To the Jews, I become a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I become as one under the law to win those under the law. To those outside the law, I become as one outside the law that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I become weak that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. We read this stuff and we think that all of it's a strategy. But what Paul is saying is here is, I will live my life as a servant to all of those around me to benefit them. And my hope is that in doing so, they will come to see Jesus and know Jesus. Our agenda is to be a great servant to all. And our hope is that they would see Jesus in the process. That's what we're called to. And here's what he says. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. Do we want to be the kind of church that is gonna change the world instead of getting caught up in doing building stuff and logistics and craziness. It's not complicated, folks. You and I just have to become much more intentional than ever to just be of benefit to the people around us. A good neighbor, a good friend, engage them, talk to them, get involved with their lives. And when it costs you time, energy, and resources, be grateful that you have been made a carrier of the gospel and that you ought to be salt to the people as salt is to us and light to the people as light is to us. This is God's call. This is God's invitation. And it's not awkward. Being a friend is not awkward. Sharing a message to convert is. But sharing a message of Jesus with a friend isn't awkward either. We should become great friends to those around us of great benefit to them. And then they will see Jesus in us and we will see the world change. Let's pray. God, we are so grateful that we are not only recipients of your grace, but participants in it. And that in participating, you have not given us a message that we are to craft with great articulation so that we can convince people uh, to believe something so that they might find themselves in a place where they will convert so that they will behave rightly and go to heaven. Though we certainly want people to hear the gospel, we want to be able to articulate it to them. We want them to know you and we want them to have eternal life. God, what you've actually said to us is just go be of benefit to them because I was of benefit to you. Let them know what it's like to know redemption because they see it, feel it, and experience it through you. And then trust me to tell you how, when, and where to let the gospel bleed out of your words, your life, and your actions. God, give us the, 
diligence to always be ready to give an answer for the hope that is within us, to have the gospel on our tongue, but yet not to have an agenda of conversion, but to have an agenda of service and a hope that people will come to know you. God, make us a people group that legitimately figures out how to be of great benefit to the community around us, starting with those in our home and then to those next to our house, then to the hood in which we neighbor, and then to the community in which we live. So that when people say, those people from that church are in our community, they would say, oh, how good is that? How grateful we are that they work here, live here, do life here. And then God, may they see you in us and give glory to you because of the good works they see in us, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.